Amen. Let's pray before we jump into God's word this morning. Father, we come thankful for that promise of grace that the one who chose us and the one who redeemed us, the one who loves us, will keep us, will hold us, no matter what comes, no matter adversity, no matter what the world says, no matter our own failings, no matter our difficulties and sufferings, we know that you keep us. Lord, we know one of the means by which you keep us is the ministry, the mystery of your spirit through your word. So I pray that today as we look into scripture, that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, that our faith strengthened and that you would accomplish your will in us and through us for your glory. Amen. And please open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. As we are going to look at today, uh, Jesus beginning his public ministry. Uh, To this point in Luke's gospel, we've looked at his birth. We've looked at even some things before his birth. We've considered his childhood as a 12-year-old in the temple, We've considered um, sort of his personal experiences as he's baptized and as he spends uh, 40 days in the wilderness. But in Luke chapter 4, he enters onto the public scene and very much becomes a a public celebrity. Uh, The attention in our culture that's given to celebrities is pretty constant. I hope you don't pay too much attention to that. Um, But the reality is many people in our society today, they want to know what so-and-so wore to the awards banquet. Uh, They want to know who is dating who or who just broke up with who. They want to know which high-level athlete is contemplating a trade to another franchise. We pay attention to all those things, and people give a lot of attention to these celebrities, and that's really nothing new. That's human nature. That's in every culture. That's in every age, and it's always been that way. And in Jesus' day, as he comes onto the public scene, he is nothing less than a very public celebrity. Word gets around fast. Jesus is performing miracles. Jesus is preaching with authority, unlike the scribes and the other religious leaders. And so crowds came from all over to hear him. The needy came for healing. The religious leaders came because they wanted to test him and try to trip him up. Um, A man called Nicodemus in the book of John comes seeking answers, seeking theological answers. In fact, King Herod himself, we're told, hoped to see Jesus because he wanted to see a sign performed. But while there was a lot of excitement that was stirred up surrounding Jesus and his preaching and his miracles, that doesn't always amount to faith. It's possible for Jesus to be popular, to be well-known, for people to observe him and hear him and yet not believe in him. In fact, those who knew Jesus best those who had watched him grow up, those who were from his own neighborhood, they sadly had the hardest hearts. For them, as we will see, familiarity bred contempt. We're gonna pick up in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 14. This is following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Luke writes, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff." But passing through their midst, he went away. Luke chooses to open his account of the life and ministry of Jesus with this scene in Nazareth. He's focusing in on on the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, and he starts here. He's emphasizing a couple things. He's emphasizing for us what the good news really is. Jesus preaches from Isaiah and he says, this is who I am and this is what I came to do. But he's also establishing what kind of person it will be who will receive this good news and revealing for us the kind of people who won't receive it. As we walk through this story, we would do well to pay attention to Jesus' teaching and to examine our response to him, our response to his claims, our response to his preaching, our response to the message and what it says about us and our needs. Verses 14 and 15 is somewhat transition-type material. It's a summary of his Galilean ministry. It tells us he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He's been in the Jordan River region. That's where he was baptized by John, and then he had gone out into the wilderness. But now he returns to Galilee. Chapters 1 through 3 of Luke's gospel have all been a setup, talking about his birth, his childhood, his baptism, his triumph over temptation, But now Jesus is stepping in the spotlight, and the next six chapters, all the way up through the end of chapter nine, are going to deal with Jesus' ministry in this region, in Galilee, and all the towns in Galilee. And it says that he returns specifically in the power of the Spirit. And it was obvious to everyone that God's power was at work in him. It says in verse 14, a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And the report wasn't, hey, breaking news, a guy who was fasting has now come back to town. That wasn't the report. The report had to do with the miracles he was doing, the power of the Holy Spirit that was flowing through him. The other gospels tell us about this early ministry. John tells us he turned water into wine at a wedding in a town called Cana. 
And at Capernaum, Mark tells us he cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue, and then he healed a whole bunch of people, including Peter's mother-in-law, and he healed a paralyzed man that was let down through a hole in the roof by his friends. You start doing things like that, a report will go out that this man has the power of God upon him. And so the word is traveling fast. But Luke focuses in his summary of the Galilean ministry. Luke doesn't tell us those stories. Luke doesn't focus so much on Jesus' miracles, but on his teaching. Verse 15 says, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. You see, Jesus was not just there to put on a show. He was not even there just to help people in their immediate experience by healing them or or doing something else for them. No, Jesus was there to proclaim a divine message of salvation. Jesus had something to say. And Mark summarizes that message this way. Mark chapter 115 tells us Jesus was preaching that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the response at this point to Jesus had been largely positive. It says that he taught in their synagogues, verse 15, being glorified by all, or many translations render it, being praised by all. People are speaking well of him at this point. They are impressed. They are excited. There's a buzz that's going around. Who is this Jesus? What is he doing here? Because we're seeing some amazing things, and we want to see more. Naturally, word has made it back to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and that's where Luke picks up the story. That's the first scene that he describes for us. And in verses 14 through 21, we find the presentation of the Messiah, the presentation of the Messiah, actually starting in verse 16, verse 16 through 21. Jesus comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. I'm sure you all remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his His mother and Joseph were on the road. They were traveling because of the census. So he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was where Jesus lived, where he grew up. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a very small town. It was a small town built on a rocky hillside, maybe 60 acres in size. Some of you guys have more land than that in your backyard. That was like the whole town of Nazareth. And there were only a few hundred people who lived there at most. A few hundred people. And so Jesus lived there for many years. And so he probably knew everyone. Some of you guys are from a small town. You know everyone. And everyone knows you. And you know their business and they know yours. For better or for worse, that's part of what it means to live in a small town. So Jesus had come home where he was somewhat of a known commodity. But he wasn't there to take a victory lap. He wasn't there to to impress them with a big display of miraculous power. Jesus was there to share his message of good news. He was there to do what he'd been doing in the other towns, which is preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. And so he heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. Now, there was a number of different significant buildings in Israel. There was one temple, though. There was only one temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. 
The temple is where the sacrifices take place. The temple is where the priests perform their duties. The temple is the place that housed the the sacred furniture implements that God had given them that represented his presence. So there was one temple, that's in Jerusalem, but nearly every town had its own synagogue. The synagogue was sort of a community center where people would gather on the Sabbath for teaching, for instruction, and for worship. They couldn't obviously all go to the temple every Saturday. So it's a community center, and it was common for either a local man or maybe someone who was visiting, a teacher that might be passing through town, to stand up and teach as part of their service. It was a day on the Sabbath where no one worked, and so everyone had the ability, the flexibility, to come and to hear that kind of teaching. Now, we were told earlier in in Luke that at the age of 12, Jesus amazed the scholars in the temple by asking questions and answering questions. So you can imagine that by age 30, Jesus has become a teacher that is unlike any other teacher in Israel. And so Jesus had made it his custom to go to the synagogue in every town that he visited. And there he would have a chance to teach, to share his message, to engage those people with the good news that he had come to preach, to tell them about God's salvation. And so they would have gone through a a number of things. They would have started with the Shema, everyone quoting together, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have had a reading from the Pentateuch. They would have had a number of these things going on. And then at one point in the service, there was always a reading from the prophets. And following that reading, someone would get up and they would give a sermon. They would reflect on the texts that had been read and give explanation, give teaching to all the people. And so Jesus stands up at that point in the service and he's given the scroll of Isaiah and he opens Isaiah to chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, he enrolls the scroll and finds the place where it is written and he reads this, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's about to tell these people that this promise that the servant of the Lord would come and that upon this messianic servant would be divine empowerment. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. God's power was at work in and through Jesus. That was undeniable. He was conceived by the spirit. He was anointed by the spirit at his baptism. He was led by the spirit into the wilderness. He was filled and strengthened by the spirit as he triumphed over temptation. And now he has come in the power of the spirit into Galilee. Jesus is none other than the anointed servant of the Lord, the promised Messiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's why Jesus had come. That's why God had sent him. He wasn't there to put Nazareth on the map. He wasn't there to to primarily perform miracles. He was there to preach good news. And, And specifically, from Isaiah, Jesus begins to unpack and explain what this good news is. What is this good news? What is this gospel? What is it that God is going to do through his Messiah? He begins to explain. It is good news, first of all, for the poor. Now this does not necessarily mean the economic poor, although many of those who are poor will benefit from the message of Jesus. But specifically here, both the words from Isaiah and Jesus' teaching have in view those who are poor in spirit. Matthew chapter five, Jesus preached, blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The good news, the gospel, is specifically for those who know their spiritual neediness. People who know they don't have what it takes. People who know that they've fallen short of the glory of God and broken his law. People who know their weakness, that they don't have the power in and of themselves to somehow fix what is broken. People who know that in and of themselves they don't have the resources. They have no righteousness to offer God. They have no strength to do the right thing. They have no power to free themselves from their indwelling corruption. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, to the broken, to those who know their spiritual need. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus continues to read, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The good news, the gospel, is for those who have been enslaved to sin, those who are in spiritual bondage, those who are destined for death because they belong to the domain of darkness, slaves of Satan himself. Jesus said in John chapter eight, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus came to set those kinds of slaves free. Colossians chapter 1.13, Paul writes that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus came to set sinners free from their captivity. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, Jesus comes to open the eyes of those who spiritually cannot see God, cannot see their need, cannot perceive the truth. Acts chapter 26, 18, Jesus says to the apostle Paul as he commissions him into into ministry that he is sending Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The ministry of the gospel, the good news, is meant to open the eyes of the blind. That's why Jesus came. And he will often, in his ministry, heal blind people. And that's not just because there was a lot of blind people in Israel. There's a reason that is always illustrating the spiritual power of the gospel. Jesus' miracles, whether he's raising the dead or cleansing a leper or healing a blind man, they're always illustrating what salvation is, which is spiritually raising us from the dead, cleansing us of our defilement, and giving us eyes that can actually see. That's what Jesus came to do. This is the miracle of salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, the same God who spoke those words at creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Salvation requires a miracle of grace. Just like it was a miracle for God to say, let there be light, it's a miracle when he speaks life into our hearts and shines light into the darkness that formerly dwelt within us. That's what the Messiah comes to do. That's the good news. He comes to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This phrase, the the year of the Lord's favor for those who are oppressed, 
means that the long-awaited era of salvation has come. People have been waiting on this. This has been promised in centuries past. This is what mankind has needed ever since Adam sinned. And God's been planning for it. God's been building towards it. God's been preparing the way, and now is the time. The year of the Lord's favor, this word for favor, is God's grace. That God's grace is breaking forth, and not necessarily in the calendar year. He's basically saying, this is the anticipated and promised time, and it's happening now. God is going to, through his Messiah, bring relief, bring salvation for those who bear the weight of sin and the weight of suffering, those who experience this oppression of life under the curse. God's going to bring an end to that. All of God's good purposes, all of his promises, all the hopes of mankind are bound up within this Messiah, within the one whom the Lord sends, within the one upon whom the power of the Spirit rests. It's in Jesus. He's going to bring God's gracious salvation to the world. So Jesus reads this passage, and then he sits down. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And you can, like, cut the tension with a knife. Luke says, and I love this little flourish here. He says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. There's an expectation. Why did you just pick that passage? Why did you read it the way you did? Why did you stop there and not go on to the next verse about God judging and destroying Israel's enemies? What are you about to say? Well, verse 21 gives us the summary of Jesus' sermon on this text. He began to say to them, verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone's waited, waiting with bated breath on the edge of their seat, and Jesus says, that's talking about me. Those promises are being fulfilled today. This is not some future era. This is not something you need to wait for any longer. It is here. It is now, and it is in me. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus presents himself as their Messiah. Jesus presents himself as their Savior, the one who brings this good news to them, the one who can do these kinds of things for them. This preaching is very simply an invitation to believe. The application of this sermon is to embrace that what Jesus is saying is true, that today is the day of salvation, that the Lord's anointed is here among us and that this is going to happen now. That Believing that message is the intended response, that they need to recognize their spiritual poverty, that they need to recognize their spiritual blindness, that they need to recognize their spiritual bondage, that they need to recognize their need and look to Christ, and receive what he has come to do for them. This is the presentation of the Messiah. But in verse 22, we see their evaluation of the Messiah. Look at their evaluation in verse 22. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Things seem to start off well at first. They seem impressed by his sermon. They like what he's saying. They like hearing that, yes, God is on the move and he's keeping his promises and 
They think that Jesus is a good speaker. They're like, wow, sort of a backhanded compliment. Man, that carpenter actually learned how to be a good public speaker. What do you know? You know they're, they're somewhat impressed by that, but they don't believe he is who he claims to be. They say, wow, that's great. That sounds amazing, but Jesus, we know who you are. You're from our town. You're just one of us. You're not the son of God. You're the son of Joseph. You're thinking too highly of yourself, Jesus. In Mark chapter six, Mark records that they said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense. They're not very pleased that this Hometown kid is claiming to be their Messiah, and they do not believe him. Listen, the claims of Jesus are not small. They're not. And they recognized exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the faithful servant of Yahweh, claiming to be the savior of the world. And these claims can be polarizing. C.S. Lewis famously wrote many years ago, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Some people think Jesus was a great teacher, and he was. But the way that he taught and the things that he taught forces you to decide that he either is who he claims to be and he does all that he claims to do, or you think he's a liar, a madman, or a false prophet. The teaching of Jesus has effectively drawn a line in the sand. Will they believe in him as the salvation that God promised? Will they recognize themselves as those who are spiritually needy, poor, blind, and oppressed. Well, they do not. Their evaluation of Jesus is that he's just a kid from Nazareth and he's not the son of God. That's how they evaluate the Messiah. But the story's not over. Jesus turns it around. Now the Messiah will evaluate them. He's about to look at them and render a better judgment on who they are and on their character. We see this in verses 23 through 27. Jesus does more here than read the room. He reads their minds. Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus recognizes that they're not accepting his claims. He's being rejected. He realizes they have a problem with what he's saying. So he quotes this common saying of the day, physician, heal yourself. It's not a Bible verse, but it was one of those like, you know, common sayings that many people say, and it's logical. I don't know how many of you guys would want to take um, uh, fitness instruction from somebody who's overweight. I don't know if many of you would, um, you know, want to hire a math tutor who flunked out of high school. So when they say, physician, heal yourself, they're basically saying, you need to prove it. If that's who you are, if the spirit of the Lord is upon you, if you're empowered with this divine strength from on high, if you're really the savior of the world, 
Show yourself to be that. Put your money where your mouth is. They had heard about it. Do the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. There's even a sense of skepticism there. They don't say, do the things you did. They say, do the things that we heard you did. But they're still reserving judgment to even acknowledge if that's true. You see their skepticism here. They insisted that seeing is believing. Perhaps there's even a little bit of a note of jealousy here. Jesus, why are you doing all that stuff at Capernaum and these other towns? You need to put Nazareth Nazareth on the map. You need to do that here. Maybe we can put one of those green highway signs on the path outside of town, home of Jesus, teacher from Nazareth. That's what they want. But Jesus answers this demand, this expectation that he perform a sign and prove himself. He answers this with quoting another proverb in verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In quoting this proverb, Jesus is pointing out that the problem is not with his message. The problem is not with the lack of evidence. The problem is with them and the hardness of their heart. That no prophet's ever welcome in his own own hometown. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's a hard heart. They are unwilling. They are stubborn. They are too proud to listen. Rather than, so rather than agree to their entitled demands for a sign, he reminds them of two stories from the Old Testament. Two stories. He says, verse 25, but in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. These stories make a startling point to these religious synagogue attenders. He points them back to the Old Testament. says, listen, in times of hard-hearted unbelief, in times in our own nation where there was covenant unfaithfulness by the people of God, God looked for humble and needy and repentant sinners elsewhere to pour out his grace, even outside of Israel. Both the stories he tells, first the one of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and then the second story about Elisha and Naaman the leper, both of these stories tell the tale of a Gentile who is an example of faith and an example of humility. And he says, they are doing a better job than you at receiving the grace of God. He starts off with this story about Elijah ministering to this widow. It's taken from 1 Kings chapter 17. Because of wicked Ahab and and the, the idolatry of Israel, there was a great famine on the land. And during this time, Elijah goes outside of Israel to a town called Zarephath. There's a widow there, and she's fixing her last meal. She's making a small fire with her son, and it's about to be their last meal before they starve to death. And Elijah tells this woman to prepare the meal for him. That's a test of faith. This woman had nothing to go on. She had no signs performed by Elijah, only his word. Think about it this way. She only had the word of the prophet. Just like these people in Nazareth only had the word of the true prophet, Jesus. But this woman, rather than saying, well, how do I know that there's gonna be enough for me left over? Rather than asking what was going to happen, she dutifully prepared the meal for Elijah and there was enough left over for her and her son as well. In fact, her supplies never ran out for the rest of 
of the, the famine. It was a miracle, the divine miracle of provision. But she was a, a Gentile. She was from Sidon, from actually a place, a city in the realm where the wicked Queen Jezebel was from. That would have been offensive to these faithful Jews who were coming to the synagogue to study scripture and hear teaching and learn the Torah. It would have been offensive for them to be reminded that sometimes God goes and saves pagan Gentile women because you guys have a hard heart. That's what Jesus was telling them. And if that wasn't enough, he piles on by telling a second story about Elisha, who is Elijah's successor. This story comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. It says in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This would have been offensive to them as well. If you remember that story, Naaman was a military officer for the Syrian army who had come against Israel who had enslaved Israelites. In fact, the reason he came to Elisha, the prophet, was because there was a Hebrew girl that was one of his slaves who told him, the Lord my God has a prophet in Israel and he is able to heal you. And so in faith, he goes to the prophet and Elisha tells him, you need to dip seven times in the Jordan River. In fact, Elisha doesn't even speak to him face to face. He sends his servant to tell him. He doesn't even answer the door. And at first, Naaman, this Syrian officer, is angry. He's offended. He's like, you want me to go dip in that muddy little creek that you guys call a river? We have way better rivers back home. I'm paraphrasing the argument there. And his servants appeal to them. They say, listen, master, if the man of God would have told you to do some great and mighty feat, you would have done it. Can't you just humble yourself enough to go dip in the river? Well, at the end of the story, although Naaman is originally offended, his pride is offended, Naaman humbles himself. He listens to the word of the prophet and he believes. And that belief is evident by the fact that he goes down into the river, he dips seven times, and when he comes up out of the water, it says his skin was as clear and as fresh as a baby's. But he was a pagan. He was an idolater. He was someone who had enslaved Israelites. He's the kind of guy that the Jews would have cheered for to suffer in his leprosy. And Jesus says, listen, there was lots of lepers back in that day, but only Naaman was cleansed because he was humble enough to receive the word of the prophet. The woman believed. Naaman was humble. These people are neither. They will not believe Jesus. They will not take him at his word. And they are too proud to humble themselves and be diagnosed by Jesus as spiritually needy, spiritually blind, spiritually enslaved to sin. And so they are the kind of people who will be overlooked. They, will, they are the kind of people who will be passed over. Jesus is basically saying, listen, if you won't receive my message, that's fine, I'll go somewhere else where other people will. You would think that the residents of Nazareth would have been the most likely to believe. None of them had ever seen Jesus do anything wrong. He was the best student in his class. He was always obedient to his parents. He was the kindest neighbor He was the most respectful to authority, all growing up, and they knew this, yet they rejected him. The sober reality is that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faith. That should serve as a warning for those who grow up in the church, who know about Jesus, who have heard all the stories, that you can be around it, you can hear it, that doesn't always equal faith in Jesus. You have to humble yourself and believe. 
Sometimes we think that if we could only see Jesus face to face, surely then it would be easier to believe. If my unbelieving neighbor or friend or family member could just see him and hear him and perhaps even see his miracles, that would overcome the hardness of their heart. But scripture shows us again and again that the problem is not God's unwillingness to reveal himself. The problem is the unwillingness of man to believe. The problem is a hard heart. They evaluated Jesus and says, you're not the son of God, you're just the son of Joseph. Jesus evaluated them and said, you are stubborn, you are proud, and it's for that reason that the gospel goes elsewhere. Following this mutual evaluation, we see an escalation of hostility towards the Messiah, verses 28 through 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The people are angry. <clears throat> they are filled with wrath that Jesus would condemn them and say they're like those old generations of Israelites that were hard-hearted and stubborn. They are offended that Jesus would say they need to follow the example of these pagan Gentiles They are offended that Jesus would diagnose them as spiritually poor, as spiritually blind, as spiritually in bondage, and they're offended that Jesus would claim to be their Messiah. So they don't even finish their synagogue service. (laughs) There's no benediction given. There's no amens announced. They like cut the whole second half of the service. They throw out all sense of decorum and instead decide to throw Jesus off a cliff which is a prelude then to stoning him. They would have thrown him down this hill and then piled stones up over his head. What started as an eager reception of the hometown kid, everyone waiting to hear what he's going to say, everyone excited that Jesus is going to be teaching today in the synagogue, well, it turned into a lynch mob. They're gonna throw him off the cliff and stone him. Yes, they're offended. Yes, they're angry, but even worse, You ask the question, well, why would they just murder him like this? How could they get away with that? They could absolutely get away with it. They could get away with it because this was the prescribed punishment for a false prophet. False prophets who co-opted God's word from the Old Testament were to be stoned. So they're doing more than just saying, I don't like how your message makes me feel. They're making a pronouncement about Jesus that he is a false prophet and that they, as faithful Jews, were to put him to death. They're effectively saying, you are not empowered by the spirit of God. You are condemned by God, Jesus. You are not the savior of the world. You're a false teacher. And we do not believe your word. We reject it in the strongest terms possible. That's why they go and attempt to kill Jesus. So this is more than just heat of the moment anger. It's complete rejection of Jesus and his message. It's the raw rage of unbelief. It's a vivid example of what Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It's hostile. The apostle John wrote in his gospel, John 3, 19, that this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus, as the light of the world, had exposed 
their wickedness. He had exposed their pride, exposed their stubbornness, exposed their neediness, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. I have to ask you this morning, what's your reaction to Jesus and to the word of Jesus? How does it make you feel to hear God's word applied to you? Put your name in that quotation from Isaiah 61. That Jesus has come to proclaim good news to poor people like J.D. That he has sent Jesus to proclaim liberty to captives like Carrie. Or recovery of sight to the blind. I could fill in more names, but you guys do it for yourselves, okay? Read through that. How does it make you feel to have those labels applied to you? Listen, the word of Christ will either humble you or harden you. The gospel is good news, but it's good news to those who are spiritually needy, those who know their poverty, those who most deeply feel their distance from God, those who are most aware of the burden of guilt, those who are most acquainted with weariness of sin and suffering, to those who know their need and who are humble, Jesus comes as a merciful savior. He comes to meet your deepest need through his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. But listen, it's only good news to you if you see yourself as the one who needs the good news. Isaiah 57, 15 says, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Are you lowly? Are you contrite in spirit? Only those who are humble will receive the grace of God like this. Isaiah 66, two, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These people heard the word of Christ and they did not tremble. They were not contrite. They tried to kill him. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. James and the apostle Peter both remind us that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. That means that we must become lowly. It is only on our knees before Christ that we will experience his grace. A refusal to recognize your need is nothing other than pride, and it's the hardness of heart, and that sort of hardness of heart towards Christ, that sort of resistance towards his word, it's spiritually deadly. Listen, if you sense any resistance in your own heart to the good news of the gospel, if you bristle at the thought of being diagnosed by Jesus this way, then you need to consider carefully. Jesus offers you mercy. He offers you salvation, but if you refuse, he will simply take that good news of salvation elsewhere and extend it to others who will receive it. These people demanded a sign, and ironically, they did end up getting one in verse 30. I don't know how this happened. There's a whole mob trying to throw him off the cliff, and it just says, but passing through their midst, he went away. 
He just walks out. See you guys later. That's miraculous. Not the kind of sign they wanted. Mark chapter 6, verse 6 says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief, and, ho- and so he went out among the villages teaching. Jesus says, you guys won't listen. You reject me, okay, goodbye. And he goes to other towns, and he keeps doing what he's been doing, which is preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of salvation. He leaves them to their pride. He leaves them to their blindness. He leaves them in their spiritual bondage. He leaves them in their spiritual poverty. Listen, the point of this whole message, the point of this text, is that salvation comes only to the spiritually needy who receive Jesus. Salvation comes to those who know their need, their spiritual poverty, and therefore receive Jesus in humility and in faith. I want to share two implications as we close. Two implications from this text for us. They're very, very simple. Number one, be humble. It's about as simply as we can put it. Be humble. And I think that that's true in a number of ways. First of all, it's easy for us to judge the residents of Nazareth, to see them as foolish. And we feel that if we were there, we would have responded differently. I wouldn't have been part of the lynch mob. I wouldn't have been angry at Jesus. But that's not necessarily the case. John chapter 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I think we ought to be humbled in reading this story because it tells us something not just about the people in Nazareth. This story tells us something about human nature. It tells us something about the human condition, that our natural disposition is pride. And our natural response to the good news of grace is to be offended, to be independent, and to reject Christ. The truth is, the hardness of heart and the spiritual pride in those residents of Nazareth, we have traces of that in our own hearts as well. The only difference between us and them is grace. That Jesus did not turn his back on us and walk away and just go give the the good news of salvation to someone else. Rather, in his grace, God mercifully overcame our hardness of heart. He overcame our unbelief. He overcame our pride because he loved us. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, because of his choosing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. None of us can boast and say, I'm better than those people in Nazareth. It's because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. God in his kindness has overcome the hardness that resides in our hearts. Salvation is often extended to the least likely. That's part of Jesus' message. It's given to widows, it's given to lepers, it's given to Gentiles, and it's given to people like you and me. You and I are unlikely candidates to be recipients of grace, and yet here we are. 
That should cause a deep humility and gratitude in us to recognize that we are recipients of God's grace despite the fact that we actually have some things in common with the people from Nazareth. We need to be humble. Be humble towards God. Humble yourself today. Secondly, second implication is we need to be ready. Be ready. Because the more that you proclaim Christ to the world, the more you share the gospel, the more you talk about God's word, and the more that you become like Christ, the more and more that you reflect his glory to the world so that when people see you, they see something that looks increasingly like Jesus, the more that happens, the more you can expect to really experience one of two responses from people. Either they will gravitate towards that because God is softening their heart because they know that they are needy because they want the freedom that you have or they're going to be repelled by that. They're going to be repelled by the words that you say. They're going to be repelled and even offended by the way that you live your life because they have a hardness of heart towards Christ. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ has a polarizing effect on those who hear. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. We're either going to be attractive and appealing to those that, that are seeking God those whom God is seeking, or we're going to be repulsive. It's going to smell like death to those that have a hard heart towards Christ. So you can expect that response when you proclaim the message of Christ. Be prepared, but listen, do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged because the hard-hearted unbelief of man does not limit God. God is not in handcuffs in heaven saying, oh, I really hope people respond to me because if they don't, I can't save anyone. No, God is able to overcome hardness of heart. He did it for you and me, and he can do it for them as well. So be prepared for resistance, but do not be discouraged because the hard-hearted unbelief of man does not and cannot limit the saving plan of God. Jesus left that town when he wanted to. And he kept on preaching where he wanted to. His mission to bring salvation was not thwarted or hindered or delayed or interrupted in any sense by their hard-hearted rejection. His plan of redemption is exactly on schedule. We can be encouraged by that because the same is true today. Listen, the gospel is going forward. God is saving sinners. Look around the room. And in that, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that he's done it for us and we can rejoice that even if people reject our preaching of the gospel, even if they are offended when we begin to look more and more like Jesus, we know that God uses that. And in his timing and in his way, his plan of salvation will not be thwarted. Listen, by God's grace, our, pover our poverty has been turned into spiritual riches, hasn't it? We've received this grace through Christ. Our blindness has been turned to sight. Many of you understand everything I'm saying today. Many of you are looking at scripture and you're seeing it there with 20-20 vision. Where does that come from? That comes from the Lord. That is a gift of his grace. Many in this room today have experienced freedom from the bondage to sin. You don't live the way you used to. 
You don't commit the same sins in the same way as often as you used to. And many of those sins have even been fully and totally put to death. There's people today who are walking in freedom. Where does that come from? That's the work of the Messiah. That's the work of Jesus. That's why he came. May we rejoice in his mercy today with humility and gratitude. And may we share that good news with the lost in hope that God is able to overcome their unbelief. God is able to penetrate the hardest of hearts with the good news of the gospel. He's done it in us, and he can do it again. So let's look to him in humility and faith today as we worship. Father, I pray for any in this room today who perhaps are offended at the message of the gospel, offended that they would be considered sinners, offended that they would be told there's nothing they can do to save themselves, offended to be told that they deserve the eternal righteous wrath of God in hell for their rebellion. I pray, Lord, that you would turn that hardness into a soft heart, that you would turn that pride into humility. I pray that you would turn that unbelief into faith, that you would grant them repentance, that you would open their eyes because they're blind, that you would set them free from their bondage to the enemy. Pray that you would take them out of the domain of darkness today and transfer them into the kingdom of your son. I pray that they would look to Christ and be humble before him and believe in him as the only one who can save us. Lord, we thank you that you've done this for so many of us. I pray that as we read this text, we would be humbled, that we would recognize ways in which you've overcome the hardness in our hearts, that we would be thankful. And I pray that this humility towards you would, would radiate in our humility towards each other, and that it would extend in compassion to those who are still lost, that we would share this good news, let them know that Jesus came into the world that he was anointed with the power of the Spirit to proclaim good news. And that his preaching was backed up by an amazing work. He died on the cross and he rose again. And it is to that miracle that we look in faith today. So thankful, Lord, for your mercy and your love. We praise you. We give you glory and ask that this passage of Scripture would shape our response to you today and would shape our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.